For January 12, 2015, this is Episode 9 of the PHP Roundtable. Today's topic of discussion is security in PHP. I'm your host, Sammy K. Powers. That does it for our topic intro. Let's meet the roundtable guests. Uh, we've got this guy. He uh, added magical peer verification in PHP 5.6. If you don't know what that means, that's okay. We're going to talk about it. This guy, his name's Dan- Daniel Lowry. Welcome, Daniel. And he's muted right now. <laughs> okay, he's there good. we go. There it is. Good to be here. Good to be here. <laughs> Still suffering holiday sunburn. I noticed you've got uh, serious sunburn going on there. Yeah, right true. off the airplane and into PHP roundtable. Direct. Slid <laughs> off the baggage claim. That's awesome. Uh, back for round two, uh, the author of Password Hashing in PHP 5.5, Mr. Anthony Ferrara. Welcome, Anthony. Hello. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, thanks for coming back. Round two. And finally, the author of securingphp.com and the lead author of websec.io, which is a site dedicated to teaching developers about security. Highly awesome. Chris Cornett, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Um, Chris, you're actually giving a talk on security at PHP Tech. This, uh, you're giving, no, it's not just a talk, it's a whole tutorial workshop, right? On security. Yeah, yeah it'll be a uh, full one day tutorial. Uh, it's during the training day, I think. That's so cool. I'm. I really am going to try to try to go to that because I actually live here in Chicago, so um, it would be really bad if I missed it. So I'm. I'm trying to make security more of a priority and and become more obsessed with it because I feel like as a responsible web developer, that's something that's really important. So welcome, guys. We should jump right into our topic. Um, as I already said, we're doing a topic on security. So I'm going to pose this scenario to you guys and uh, see what see what you guys think. So here's the scenario. I'm just a lone freelance kid who, from Podunk, Kentucky. I make tiny WordPress blogs and a little nonprofit website. I don't need to care about web, web security. Is that true or false? <laughs> Chris is shaking uh, his head. Yeah, yeah. No, completely false. Um, so it's it's really easy in that kind of situation to think, oh, I'm tiny. They'll never hack me. There's nothing important. Um, but part of the problem is that what happens is attackers will get into your site and actually use it as a platform um, to attack other sites. Uh, there was a big hack a while back, and I can't remember what part of the year it was last year, um, where I think hundreds of thousands of WordPress blogs were actually, um, you know, they found the vulnerability in some plugin, um, I think. And uh, and they turned those into attack platforms and just basically DDoSed, you know, various services. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily about you being small. It's, you know, it's how much damage you could potentially do if somebody, you know, found vulnerability there. Right. And aside from size, too, I mean, pretty much everyone I know uses the same password for everything. So even if it's just some my my first blog site with logins, if you get my password for that, then you probably have my password for most of my other services. And so it can be used for a launching off point there too. So, I mean, you have a responsibility to your users too. You got to remember that um, as a web developer, you're doing things that lots of other people use. And so if you fall down too, 
So to me, that's what I mean. Even if you're small, and it's, aside from that, I think people have an expectation of privacy, whether that's reasonable or not. We can we can debate that uh, till the end of time. But I, I think that's something that we do value in our society. So so it's important to be a good steward of that when people put their trust in what you're doing to try to return the favor, help them out a little bit. Well, I think um, you know I want to make kind of like a little bit of a grander point here. Um, I, I think that the fact that we have to ask this question is the exact reason why we're in the position that we're in right now as a world, you know, where we have company after company, site after site coming down, being compromised. It's really, it really seems to be uh, a matter of time before something gets compromised, not, um, not something that's an unusual event. Uh, and I think that it's kind of like an industry trend. So in the 80s and early 90s and the dot-com boom, we had this um, – very much a cowboy coding mentality. You know, you had your developers, they sat down, they spun out code, they didn't worry about anything else. They just worried about writing the code. Then all of a sudden there's this really big trend towards DevOps where our developers need to start worrying about operations and developers need to worry about hosting and performance and all these things that they never really worried about before. And then starting about a couple of years ago, we started this big unit testing push where developers now not only need to worry about DevOps, but they have to worry about quality control as well. And I think it's basically coming to the point where developers can no longer just be this siloed, I only care about code, I don't worry about all these other issues. I think it has to be, you have to focus on security, you have to focus on testing, you have to focus on usability. You know, the notion of I just want to write code, I think is a completely and utterly dead one, at least within a professional context. Now, that's not to say that there isn't room for specialties. There isn't room to have someone who is a security personnel who knows how to do things like penetration testing and augment. But I think every developer needs to know at least the foundation level and needs to be thinking about it on a foundation level, just like they would with, with testing. So how, how would well, a developer who's – go ahead. Well, I think that, that, um, that brings us to like a similar point. You know, we talk about things, uh, is it secure or is it not secure? And it's really easy to think about stuff like this in absolutes. And uh, I think one of the important things to, to get across to people is there is no such thing as secure. It's only a matter of how hard or how easy it is to get into something. And we spend a lot of time, there's so many facets of it, we spend all this time saying, okay, am I using the right algorithms? Uh, did I verify this or that? And, and spend all this time on the technical things. And when one of the easiest ways to do it is just the social engineering of, you know, the, sending someone to a fake site that looks like that. So we really we really need to, I think, address this as developers in a holistic approach, like Anthony said. We've got to take this I mean, from the base. It's got to be part of everything that we do. You've got to think about security first, and it needs to be not an afterthought of, oh, we'll make sure, we'll send in some people to look at it after the fact and see how it works. Because there are just too many ways to do things, to get into, uh, to access information you shouldn't have, or to find out things that you shouldn't be able to find out if you don't approach it that way. And so what Anthony was saying, we need to address it at an industry-wide level. I think we all need to start taking responsibility for it up front. Because it's that thing, you know, you see the, the comment in your code that's eight years old, to do, and it's still there. And so if you don't prioritize something, in all likelihood, it's not going to happen. So that's so why I think we're... Right. If you think of it sort of holistically like that and think of, of security as not just these tiny implementations in your code and you're trying to think of it in the broader terms of like, yeah, like how, how do I protect myself from, you know, phishing attacks where they kind of 
uh, an attacker could send out a, a replica of my website and grab login credentials or something like that. Um, how how do we take all that in as a developer who doesn't is not familiar with security um, and what what should we be, be be concerned about? Where do we start? Like how do we just kind of take on this huge topic? This is one of the really nice things of PHP, right? You know, we, we have these these things that can be complex and nuanced, and PHP does a really nice job of simplifying those things. I mean, specifically the password hashing stuff that Anthony worked on should make it, I mean, trivial to implement that specific area correctly. So that's one thing that's really nice for us as PHP developers. I think is one of the reasons a lot of people gravitate to the language. Um, so that's we can we don't have to necessarily know all of it all about everything. That would be quite daunting. I don't know all about everything. I only know a little bit about a little bit. So but that, I don't I don't think people should be discouraged by saying, oh, there are all these things. I can't even begin to address it. Right, because be, it could be totally overwhelming at first. So where do we Chris, start? Do you have any, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I was going to actually ask Chris, do you have any um, good advice? Advice? A good advice? Good advice? For someone, uh, like an entry point into security and, and how they could start locking things down. Um, well, there's there's one obvious place that you know kind of gets pointed to a lot. There, there's the OWASP, OWASP top ten, um, you know, and uh, the OWASP group, the Open Web Application Security Project. Um, they actually have a top ten list of the most common vulnerabilities that are out there. Uh, you know, it's stuff like cross-site scripting, cross-site request forgery, you know, various like SQL injections, that kind of stuff. Um, that is kind of a good starting point to look at and say, okay, here's the, the major vulnerabilities that I have to watch out for, you know, and, and then start learning from there how to fix those in PHP because uh, it's not specific to PHP. Um, right. But as it turns out, for a lot of those, you know, for probably the, you know, maybe 90% of the time, there's relatively simple things that you can do in PHP, you know, uh, properly escaping output, filtering input. You know, a lot of that stuff goes a long way to fix a lot of the security issues in PHP. Um, there's always edge cases, of course. Um, but, you know, there's, there's some tried and true methods that thankfully have come out uh, over the years of fixing that stuff. Cool. So we do have like an entry point, like a top 10 list we can hit up as we're coding and just to make sure that we're that we're at least starting to get there so um let's talk about a couple of them uh i've got a couple of security topics here that um uh, some of them are actually on that top 10 list um and then uh, we can move on to talk about a few other things but um, one of the most common ones that you hear a lot is sql injection uh anthony what is sql injection and how do you protect yourself against it so this is actually just a simple concept that we tend to overbloat and overcomplicate. Really, all it is is having a malicious user inject code put into a SQL query. Um, that's really all it is. So it's the same thing as if you had PHP code and we're using eval. It's the same thing with SQL. Um, an attacker can for, can uh, craft a specific variable. So if you're binding, I don't know, um, post name and you're putting that directly into an SQL statement, a malicious user could create a, a, a bad version of that value that will then change what the query meant. So if the query is supposed to get all the, get the user by name, it could wind up you know, updating the user. It's, it's a simple topic, but it's kind of a little, I find it a little bit challenging to talk about. I actually did a, uh, a video on it, talking about prepared statements in SQL injection 
um, years ago. Is it on your blog? Yeah. um, Let me drop a link in chat. Yeah, that'd be great. I can add it to the show notes later. Uh, What's your blog address again? Well, I'll I'll drop that link in too. Okay, cool. (laughs) Well, if you're listening uh, in your car or something, uh, you can go to phproundtable.com and uh, look at the show notes. Actually, you can't right now, although you will soon. I've been working on the website uh, for this past week. I'm really hoping to get syndication on soon, but it's got a lot of other cool features too, but um, that's all coming. Um, so SQL injection, if, I, if I'm if i using a web framework, say Laravel, do I need to even worry about SQL injection? Doesn't it take care of all that for me? That's, I think, one of the common fallacies is people think, well, if I just use a prepared statement, I'm safe. No tool can pr- can protect you. Tools can help. Tools can give you the tools to actually do it, but you need to still implement it correctly. You need to understand how to use those tools appropriately. Right. Um, I've got a question here from Sketch on Twitter. Uh, he said, would closed source software be a major factor in security flaws? Open source projects can have thousands of developers working on reviewing, fixing code, whereas in, with closed source, only a select few have access to fix security holes. This is an interesting this this comes up a lot. You know, this is used as a reason for why. I mean, I think I, I think we all love open source. This is used as a reason why. Is it really feasible when you're talking about large scale projects with tons and tons of lines of code? It's nice to think that yeah, you know, people are their eyeballs on every single commit that comes in, but it's it's probably not the case. I mean, it, honestly, I I think good code comes from good developers, and so when you use somebody else's code, whether that's from a proprietary vendor or it's uh, some dude on GitHub, like you you have to, you still, I, you probably would still be well served to validate for yourself what's good code and what's not good code. It can be kind of scary to be using some random guy's code, you know, you still are responsible for it. So I, I don't know if it's really a I, major I think sticking it's point. a bit of a false dichotomy actually. You know, I think we tend to, as open source people and people in the open source community, we tend to gravitate to this idea that with enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. And it makes sense and it's logical and, yeah, okay, so open source software should, in theory, have fewer security vulnerabilities because you have more people looking at it. But that also gives the attacker more advantage when they're trying to find something and if they find a bug before anyone else does, they can then exploit it. And that's how you wind up with these 100,000 WordPress sites that were hacked because a security, um, an attacker finds a vulnerability first. That can happen in either case. It can happen with closed source just as easily as it can happen with, with open source. The key, and I've said this multiple times, and I really b- believe this, you're going to get breached. Guaranteed, open source, closed source, they're going to be holes. What matters is not whether the source is open or closed. What matters is how you deal with it. If you respond very quickly, um, you know, if you release a patch within hours of receiving the news of the vulnerability, doesn't matter if you're closed source or open source, the bug is fixed. That's a really that's, cool philosophy. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting thing too. I, I think that 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 kind of goes back to the the idea that a lot of times we we have where as developers we don't want to be wrong about things, and I think that that's something that's really important for security, like. You don't know everything, and none of us do, and you can be wrong, uh, sometimes very painfully. And like Anthony said, the important thing is not not trying to bury it or not trying to hide it 
or or pretending like it doesn't exist. The important thing is to fix the problem. I think everyone appreciates that. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to fix when you're not. And that's the most that's the key thing, like Anthony said. Well and and also, you know, one other thing to think about, you know, you Anthony mentioned the whole DevOps kind of thing where, you know, you have developers worrying about the actual operations side of the, you know, maintenance and everything. Um, you know, you, you, you also have to think about other things that you can do outside of the code. You know, if, if, uh, you know, if you're worried about, you know, any kind of, you know, DDoS attacks or anything, you know, maybe, maybe a developer should be talking with some of the network guys and say, Hey, we should put some kind of load balancer in front of these machines or, you know, not it, keep in mind that it's not necessarily always about the code. You know, there's, there's only so much you can fix on the code side. And I mean, obviously, you're not going to have something as powerful as an IDS inside of your PHP code because it's just not, it doesn't make sense to have it like that. Um, and you guys keep referencing stuff outside of the code, which is kind of funny because me not being a security expert created show notes that was basically focused on the code specifically and not really talking about any anything outside of code. Um, so um, if you guys have other thoughts on like specific ways that developers can protect themselves and their sites and their users outside of um, some of these specific things that I'm kind of bringing up, please feel free to say stuff because um, well, that's one that's... On that nice. exact note, I'll toss something out in that I think it's worth talking about the code specifically because that's what developers here are going to be looking at. You know, whether developers should be focused upon the full stack or just the code, yeah, I think they need to have some visibility into the full stack. But if your job is the code, that should be where maybe 80 to 85% of your focus should be. Um, you know, there's a concept called defense in depth, which is saying that you put multiple different layers of, of um, protection. So you have a firewall out in front of your servers, then you secure each layer behind it, and the code is one, two, maybe three of those layers. But what you do is you try to secure all of them so that way if one of them gets breached, it doesn't breach the whole stack. So you have a firewall, if the firewall falls, it's, they just, that gets them into that next layer, which is still hopefully secure. Um, the fallacy breaks down when people go, well, I'm not releasing this code public, so I don't need to worry about security, because now you just took one of those la those layers and put a gigantic hole in the middle of it. And that's, you know, goldmine for, for attackers. So, you know, that whole notion of, I don't see how this could be attacked, or I've got something else that prevents this attack. You know, I think focusing on the code and realizing that we need to secure everything is incredibly important as well. So that that really kind of makes me think that I need to think like an attacker. Like, how am I going to breach a system, right? So I'm not thinking I'm going to just compromise everything. I'm like, what little tiny spec can I just stick my finger in? And what other little thing can I go from there? Is that really the, the philosophy that attackers would have? That's how I approach it, and that's how we've seen people in the real world approach it. I mean, take, for example, the Drupal bug recently. Um, I did a write-up on it on my blog. It was uh, back in, I think, October, I want to say. Um, but they had a SQL injection vulnerability, which combined with three other vulnerabilities, none of which were immediately exploitable, none of which were actually an issue. But the four of them coming together was this, they called it Drupal-geddon. It was this, you know, holy, mm -hmm. um, you know, perfect storm of vulnerabilities that let attackers do whatever they wanted into literally millions of sites. You know, it, it was really, it was incredible to watch. Their response was phenomenal from the security team there. 
But, you know, it goes to show that even these little things that you don't see how are possible to exploit, combined with other exploits, all of a sudden make for an attack vector that's quite plausible and not only quite plausible, is actually being executed in real life. Well, and, and kind of similar to that point, um, you know, you, you mentioned kind of the integration of everything being the problem. Um, you know, a lot of times we can look at the code at the individual libraries and say, okay, I've done everything possible to make this secure. But then when you bring it together with, you know, two or three other open source, you know, PHP packages or whatever, um, it's actually the integration of those packages that's the problem. It's not always the specific libraries because you may have a, um, you know, an output, uh, output escaping class, you know, something like Twig or, uh, you know, anything like that that does its job perfectly, but it could be something where it's integrating with the actual data that it's getting, you know, that it's outputting to the template. There could be something wrong there where somebody could inject a value if they knew what they were doing. Uh, you know, so you kind of have to think about the, the integration of the code as well as, you know, besides just the, the code that you're writing necessarily. You know, that brings up something interesting that I hadn't really thought about in the security context before, um, talking about the integration of things. To, to what extent do you guys think that testing plays a role in security? Because I, I know we've all written unit tests that are probably garbage and, you know, test is not real thorough, this or that. And a lot of times the things that get exploited are things we, I mean, if we knew about it, we wouldn't have left the hole there. And so how useful do you think testing can really be to help ferret out actual security problems. Any thoughts on my, that? I just uh, my personal experience on it hasn't been that good. Um, I've audited and worked with a number of you know commercial testing suites, automated penetration tests, and things like that. Um, I'll give you an example. Years and years ago, I was on the Joomla core team, and we had a uh, a vendor who basically charged, let's say, it was in the neighborhood of six figures per test come to us and say, hey, we want to try running our software and give you a report. Would you guys be interested? I said, absolutely, let's do it. They handed us back a PDF that was on the order of like three or 400 megabytes. Um, I think they had said that they had found like 250,000 vulnerabilities, something stupid along the, that, that nature. And we sat down and we went through every single critical one of which there were like maybe, I think, a thousand but we had a team together and we sat down and went through every single one and not a single one was valid. So we started cherry picking each one from the other levels and not a single one was valid. And that's kind of been my experience with the automated tools is yes, they do find things, but the false positive rate is on the scale of 99% as opposed to the other way around, which we, you would want it. That's not to say all tools are bad. That's just been my personal experience. Um, and they wind up, they do find issues, which is awesome, but they also create a lot of headache too. Yeah. Especially the, the static scanners. Yeah, that's <laughs> specifically what I'm talking about, headache. the static because, analyzers. Yeah. The dynamic yeah. scanners, the ones that actually hit the site and, you know, run through like try a SQL injection on a form, um, you know, the fuzzing tools and whatever, um, those usually give a little bit better results or a little bit more valid results, let's say that. Um, than static scanners because those just kind of look for keywords and you know things like that. So yeah. Those so you guys are talking about support. automated tests, right? Like the the ways that I can try to hack my own projects to make sure that they're not there's there's not any like obvious security flaws in it, right? Yep. Uh, so like if if I don't if I'm not familiar with uh you know just if I'm just getting started in this, how do I hack my site? 
<laughs> I want to try and hack it before somebody else does. How do I find it, the, the holes in it? You, you know, to me, I, I think that that's, that's one of the simultaneous, that's, uh, we have all these, we have these RFCs explaining how everything works. And so we know exactly what has to happen for, you know, your server to answer requests, uh, or we, we know exactly what has to happen. And so, it's kind of, to me, my experience has been, and I have a little bit of uh, nefarious experience with some of these things, is that the the easiest way to do it is to know how the technology is supposed to work. Because once you know that, you kind of know where the corners are usually cut or what somebody might not think about uh, in a specific language. And granted, that I'm not advocating that everybody go out and you know just start reading the whole catalog, the backlog of RFCs on every internet-related technology, but that's one place to start. That, for me, that that's kind of the starting place for me. That's when I started really being able to pinpoint problems in things that I had done in the past and was kind of mortified by some of, some of the old code that I had written. Uh, it was, was learning the actual protocols and what was supposed to happen. I think the other, another way that you can do that as well is starting to think, well, I want to attack a very, very specific vulnerability, so I want to do an SQL injection. Let me go through and find everywhere I execute a query and just start tracing things back. Look, see, okay, I construct this query here, and I put this variable into that, but did I ever escape that variable? And you wind up tracing that variable back to find out, well, no, that wasn't escaped. And then you figure out, hey, well, then that's this URL. Let me try doing something to that URL and see if I get a query error. And you do that, and you actually get the error, and you notice, hey, wait a minute, I just hacked the site just by reading the source code. And it sounds very, very daunting until you do it the first time and go, oh, my God, that was so ridiculously simple, if it's a decent code base. Um, I reg, and I've publicly regged on WordPress a lot, and I've privately regged on it a lot, because if you actually sit down and try to do that with WordPress on SQL injection, on um, cross-site scripting, and a couple other vulnerabilities, it's really, really, really difficult. Their code base is designed to be not really auditable. So yeah, it may be secure, but it's not secure by design, it's secure by accident. Um, or at least that's my personal opinion. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of ties in with some of the other stuff we were talking about. I think that maybe the theme of, of so far is, is that no matter what automated testing things you have in place, it doesn't matter what tools you have, and it doesn't matter uh, if you read the tutor tutorial online for how to set up your Nginx server, um, like you can't, like you're still responsible for it. You, we need to take personal responsibility for the security we're working on. So yes, how do we do that? Taking responsibility. <laughs> Good. So, yes. um, you, you were you were talking about you know kind of specific things you can do um, you know that I circle back around to the OS project they actually have a lot of good stuff out there um, their PHP stuff PHP specific stuff is a little bit lacking um, but and I'll I'll put this in here um, they did actually just put out the fourth version or uh, their uh, testing guide it's about two hundred pages or so. Um, but it does give you a very specific list of things that you can actually go through and, you know, something that will help you get into the mind of an attacker, I suppose, uh, you know, and give you details, you know, here's the, here's the type of thing to check. Here's the information, you know, how it could possibly exploit it. Uh, I think on some of them, they actually 
show you how to do it from the black box side, you know, having absolutely no knowledge of the code, um, you know, versus what we've been talking about, you know, knowing how the code works. Uh, you know, you get a little bit more in depth on that side, obviously. Um, but it's, it's a pretty useful guide. Um, you know, I wouldn't sit down and, you know, try to read through the entire thing, but it's good to kind of, you know, cherry pick ideas out of and gives you some good, good places to start. Oh, and one thing I'll add to that is it's good if you're not familiar at all, give it a scan. Don't even bother reading. Just read the bullet points, go mm -hmm. through, and then as you learn a little bit more and get a little bit more comfortable, go through and read the para first paragraphs. You know, this is there's a lot of content and a lot of material in there, and you can kind of keep coming back to it over time and keep building and building. You don't have to do everything in one shot. So we're learning to be hackers. We're learning to be crackers, right? We're learning to, to do bad things, but we're doing it to our own code. It seems like the more I learn about security, the more dangerous I feel like I am because I'm like, wow, I can do some bad things, but I'm trying to do it in my own sites because it's illegal to do it to other sites. But sometimes you see something in somebody else's site and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that's no one else has exploited that yet. Maybe you should just let the site know and be like, hey, this is a bad deal. Um, but, uh, but as we start going through each of these um, sort of specific things that we can do in our code to kind of prevent some stuff. I just want to scan over a couple of these things that you'll probably find in some of these lists. One is a cross-site request forgery, a CSRF. Chris, what have you, have you dealt with that? What is it? And like, what, <laughs> sure, how, give how me the you, one that's hard to Have you been hurt here. by that? <laughs> okay, so the, the most common example of this, um, and I, I, you kind of looking for a description of it, or, or, or just like, yeah, like so, like a quick TLDR, and then like maybe some yeah. maybe something that you've. I, I'm interested to see if you've experienced this firsthand. You know. Um, yeah. So actually, in uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Anthony. Don't go to that link. Um, the uh, the comment that he put there about the logout. Um, that's actually a pretty common issue in a lot of applications where uh, an attacker could potentially just give a user a link, uh, you know, to the logout page. And if it's not protected, it'll just immediately log the user out, you know, and the user wouldn't have any kind of control over that. Um, you know, the, if you add in uh, the CSERF token to the logout, then it can actually check that and say, okay, you didn't actually mean to be logged out of this application. Um, you know, it's, it's basically kind of a way to um, verify that the request that's coming in is actually coming from your application. Um, usually you'll see it as a uh, hidden field on a form. It's just a, you know, randomly generated token that's checked on, on form submit. Yeah, that's uh, in Laravel, I think when you use the form, uh, the, like the little thing that generates your HTML stuff for your form, it automatically includes a, a token for you. So you don't even have to worry about it, which is kind of nice. I, I think Symphony does that too. At least it used to. I don't know if it still does. Most of the frameworks have at least some kind of a mechanism for helping there. If it's not completely automatic, it's pretty easy. Yeah. What about uh, cross-site scripting? Is that kind of related? XSS. Yeah, it's actually, it's kind of interesting. Um, cross-site scripting is where a malicious person is, is able to inject JavaScript into your page. That's where it starts. Um, in the beginning, in the early years, many people thought it was, oh, well, they can just break your layout or, you know, inject images or inject HTML. So it's not that bad. It's nothing to worry about. It's this minor little thing. Um, but the realities of it are incredibly, incredibly dangerous because 
if an attacker can get JavaScript onto your page, they can do anything that the user can do. So they can start stealing information. They can start pretending to be the user and submitting false requests. So like, for example, we just talked about the cross-site request forgery. All any, well, the vast majority of cross-site scripting attacks are automatically cross-site request forgery off of the bat. They just, you need to be secure from cross-site scripting in order to even be able to possibly secure against cross-site request forgeries. Um, they're a massive, massive issue. They don't seem like it on the surface, but sophisticated attackers can do incredibly damaging things to them. Is the primary way of of achieving cross-site scripting by uh, through user input or or, or sending uh, input that's not escaped? Is that the is that the primary way? It's typically um, around rendering. So you'd render content that the user would control in some way, shape, or form. I, I hesitate to use the term user input because it may not be the user that's inputting it. It may be another user. It may be coming from somewhere else. Um, there were all sorts of bugs. Like, I don't know if you remember MySpace back in the day, you sh you'd be, you were able to customize and insert your own JavaScript snippets. Um, and you're able to do that like across other people's pages. And that's a, a cross-site scripting attack. Whether it comes from the user input directly, whether it comes from another source, um, one classic cross-site scripting attack that's on pretty much every single page on the internet are ads, ads and tracking scripts. You know, we dump these little JavaScript snippets at the bottom, which call some remote service, and we assume that that remote service is secure. If an attacker ever got a hold of one of those ads or CDNs mm -hmm. or something like that, they could completely own everything. That's very scary. And to know that, you know, some of the big ones, big, I mean, like just last year, I mean, some of the biggest companies that we have all this faith in Target, eBay, Zappos, that was like two years ago. I mean, like just big names getting their credit cards, like the data for the people's credit cards stolen. And to think that a big company like that can be breached. What about some little ad site that's got, you know, all this JavaScript code on thousands, maybe even millions of websites that could easily be compromised. And they might even not even know that they're compromised and they could have it out there for months and an attacker could be doing whatever they want. It's just, it's so scary. Oh, there, there, there was one that I had saw years ago. And this one just is kind of funny. Um, it, the site was defaced and was taken down. Unless you came to the site directly, like if you came to it from a search engine, it showed you the defaced site. If you came to it directly, so it checked the refer and would choose whether to actually show the defacement based on the refer or not. This lasted wow. for months because the company behind it would never <laughs> search for their site. They would always click their bookmark, and hence they never <laughs> saw the defaced site. Oh my gosh. But all the other competitors and all of their customers only saw the defaced <laughs> site. Yikes. All right, so, so that's... That's one place where the testing might be actually be helpful. Yeah, try to try to inject some nasty stuff into your site. Um, since we're talking about this kind of stuff, uh, there was a, a point that was made by uh, Elizabeth Smith. I think it was in her security talk last time at uh, uh, this past year at PHP Tech. She was mentioning uh, mentioning filtering input versus escaping it. And I think she was an advocate for filtering and not escaping, not just kind of like if you take some user input, you. Um, it could have some JavaScript in it and stuff like that. So you want to make sure that that's not executed on your code. And I think she was advocating that we should filter it as a, I'm sorry, uh, we should escape it instead of filter it, like trying to automatically strip out the JavaScript. Now I'm, I could be quoting it wrong on that, but what are your all thoughts on escaping versus filtering input? 
you, you need to do both. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when you're, when you're coming in now, there's another layer on top of that. There's, you know, there's filtering, there's escaping, and then there's validation. So I'm a big fan of validating on input. You know, that's, that's going to be, if you're looking for somebody's first name, chances are it's not going to look like a script tag, you know, so you can <laughs> definitely, you know, kick that back and say, okay, there's something wrong here, you know, and, and kind of head them off at the pass a little bit that way. Um, but then, yeah, when it gets past that, then start, you know, filtering down stuff um, so that you don't get stuff like a um, stored XSS vulnerability where, you know, somebody writes in their bio, they have a script tag, it gets stored to the database. And then every time somebody visits their profile page, it outputs that script tag. That's a stored XSS versus just a straight on, you know, here's the URL with the exploit in it. Um, you know, and then on the other side, escaping the output so that if there is any script tags or anything, then it's going to filter that and escape it out. So you don't even see those. Um, you know. One thing I'd like to elaborate there, um, input does not mean user input In, input means anything that does not is not hard coded into your application. So database results are input to your application. You want to be filtering them and doing at least a limited quick validation on them and escaping everything that leads your code. Um, and it's really easy to say, well, HTML, that's output. Well, so are database queries. So is anything that you send to memcache. So is anything that you send to MongoDB, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You have all of these systems where data leaves your code and goes to an external system. You need to escape or, or encode properly for that destination system. Um, so filter and escape out is a is the perfect mantra. That's you know something we all need to really buy into, but we need also buy into this really really wide definition of input and output. Anywhere code is any if the variable is not hard coded in the file that you're working with, consider it as input. That's a really great point because I feel like I I I just think oh I've escaped all the get and post variables I'm golden. But <laughs> sessions, well, and, databases. Yeah. And that's precisely why we mm -hmm. say filter and escape out, because, you know, escape as close as possible to output, preferably in a templating layer that'll do it for you. That way it's really, really easy to see and say, okay, I did not miss escaping these because I can see right where it's outputted that I escaped it. Where you run into problems is where you try to escape things three or four or five levels back, and then you go, well, was this variable escaped? Well, this method used to do it, but I don't remember if it does now, and you wind up down this rabbit hole. That's kind of the thing, like, if you always put your car keys in the same place, you'll know where they are, and, and you start to forget, okay, did I did I verify this here? I don't know, and it's, it mm -hmm. turns it into a mess. You know, something uh, Anthony said there, people don't think about it. Uh, it leaving your uh, information leaving your system as being input and, and that kind of ties into the encryption uh, of of sending data back and forth like there a lot of the stuff we do and then we're getting better about this things are encrypted more and more on the internet but when it leaves when it leaves your machine it can be touched by other people it can be modified and unless you have things encrypted correctly you don't know that it even if you were the one doing the sending you need to be sure that it arrived the way you sent it. And so you, the, the easiest way to do that is to filter things out. I mean, if we're not talking about privacy concerns there, uh, I mean, filter and validate and regardless of where it came from, if you didn't have it in memory now, you know, it needs to be, you need to protect yourself. 
that was my that was my uh, my my transition into the uh, TLS SSL encryption stuff <laughs> because I don't think people people don't think about it that way. It's it's not just uh, it's not just about privacy. Oh, um, when 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 information <laughs> leaves, uh, I can I can get between your information and the server you were sending it to, and maybe you weren't a nefarious user, but that doesn't mean uh, a malicious person didn't change it between when you sent it and when it arrived. So, so what you're talking about is a man in the middle attack, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what people talk about when they mean man in the middle, and it's pretty self-explanatory. It's someone getting in here and either modifying it or just uh, just reading it. Uh, so uh, that's that's really a consequence of our our public key uh, encryption architecture that we have because um, you know, I think it's people get get confused or, or maybe scared by terms like asymmetric encryption and public key cryptography. And, and it's not conceptually, it's not really that difficult. Uh, basically we have this problem, right? It's like a, a spy. If, if I want something to be secret and, and I, we both need to be able to decrypt that information, uh, how do I get you the key? Um, I could hand it to you, but that's obviously not feasible in something like a web application. I can't, I can't drive to your house and tell you that, or even if I could, it's not feasible for everyone. So in the 70s, um, really smart people came up with this idea for public key encryption. It's basically just creating two keys, one that I can share with anybody, and they're able to encrypt something that only I can then read. And, and so it really just boils down to that. Um, that's all. That's all we're doing when we're encrypting information for transport over the internet. Uh, in our websites, is we're just saying, here, anybody who wants to can send me information, and then I can unlock it. That's all. It, that's all it is. And where we run into problems with the main in the middle attacks is we have to have someone. The way public key encryption works, the way we're able to verify, um, is we need a third party to say, yes, you should trust this person. And so the biggest issue with man-in-the-middle attacks that people have is they maybe don't verify that this person is trusted. And so that's when you run into the problem of you're not sure that this information is, is valid or legitimate or hasn't been tampered with. And that gets into peer verification. Uh, I, you contributed yeah, to I was, I was sure. Yeah. So um, was actually, was that simple enough? Oh, totally. I, I actually want to back just a little bit since we're on the subject of SSL slash TLS. Why are we saying SSL slash TLS? Why aren't we saying just SSL anymore? I thought, uh, buy an SSL secure, a certificate, right? <laughs> Where's well, the, the, the first, I mean, it was called secure socket layer, because, and it's just kind of a narrow term. I, I, I don't believe there. It's just, it's just now trans, you have transport layer security versus secure socket layer. It's just a broader term because I might want to encrypt something without it going over a socket connection. Or this to that, but also those terms refer to the actual protocols that were established in, in RFCs to say this is how we want to do this. And the first two, yet uh, I believe SSL one, and then SSL two, and then SSL three, and all of those are really insecure and outdated at this point, and no one should be using them. Uh, yeah, they're actually so dead now, right? It's, uh, only yeah. TLS is starting to be supported by modern web browsers. I think at Google, the Google yeah. Chrome browser is going to officially stop supporting SSL after, um, like, in a couple of months or something, right? Yeah, so, I mean, nobody, it's the same, It's they're used interchangeably, but if you're actually talking about the protocols, you don't want to be using an SSL protocol, um, but they, everybody knows what you're talking about. They're they're the same thing when you're talking about them, basically. 
Yeah. So um, if we're okay, so we're, let's get back to the peer verification thing, because this is actually something that I learned about when working with the Facebook SDK. Um, and this is a contribution to try to make it more secure. Now, we can't really talk about this, I don't think, without actually kind of figuring, um, at least describing really quickly what a certificate is and kind of describing the root, the difference between like a root intermediate uh, and chain certificate and all that. Or or can we? I mean, what what is it? What is a certificate's role in all this? And and how does it help us verify it, um, that whatever this connection that we want is from who we think it is? Well, um, like we have three parties basically in our in our public key encryption. Uh, scenario and one is us one is the person who wants to get the information from us or vice versa and then you have the third party which is referred to as certificate authority that you basically say i trust these certificate authorities to validate that the, the person i'm communicating with is who they say they are and so when you buy a certificate it's signed from uh, it's signed by a certificate authority and the most common use case is for browsers obviously and so when you download chrome or firefox uh, or internet explorer those browsers come packaged with a set of, of root certificates that they trust and so you and i mean any pretty much anywhere you're going to buy a certificate online you're going to get it and it's going to be signed by one of those secure uh, one of those certificate authorities or um, you can also you have these this concept of intermediate security authorities uh, where these top level root CAs uh, vouch for these lower level ones. And so the way that works in an actual certificate file, and I'm just going to speak in terms of the, the standardized open source PEM format, which is uh, what OpenSSL uses uh, primarily. And, it's like uh, the base 64 encoded version of the actual certificate, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, and it's just, it's really simple. It's just like a couple of lines that says begin certificate, then a bunch of base 64 gobbledygook, and then in certificate. And you can, your, your actual certificate just concatenates the CA that you trust or any intermediate CAs that you also trust and uh, your certificate. And then people are able to visit. They get a copy of that certificate. They find uh, a CA in that list that they trust, and they say, okay, I believe this person is who they say they are because they're vouched for by somebody I trust. And that's the whole process in a nutshell. And you don't have to have, like a lot of people make the mistake, and this is what you, I think you were going to get at with the Facebook thing. You don't have to have a, every single certificate authority under the sun that you trust. If you're only needing to connect to Facebook, you could just have one single CA or one single certificate in your CA file, exactly. just the Facebook one. Yeah, I think Anthony was starting to say something on that too. Or I don't uh, know if it was on that. I was going to make a joke that he forgot to talk about Eve. Eve? <laughs> so when you're talking like cryptography and cryptography papers and things like that, there's always usually three names. Alice, who has the information. Bob, <laughs> you want to give the information. And then Eve, Bob. eavesdropper. Ah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> well, so in, in okay, the, the PHP SDK, we, we – um, I say we. I have. I'm not hired at Facebook. I don't. I don't work for Facebook. People think so all the time. Um, basically, there was this giant uh, certificate authority file that had a giant list of certificates, trusted certificates that you could use. And I think this is kind of the stuff that you would find on your on your um, uh, on your computer, just when you're making connections to make sure that it, when you're connecting to an SSL or a TLS, um, that you can verify that these are trusted connections. Um, and the the thing is, like Mozilla offers this kind of like they keep one up to date um, that has all these trusted certificate authorities. Um, and I I guess so I'm 
some certificate authorities become untrusted after a while or something like they they've proven to be untrustworthy and so they get removed from the certificate so uh, an attacker could possibly use a at one time was trusted certificate authority and somebody's using an outdated list of certificates that are trusted and suddenly a man in the middle attack becomes possible even over a secure uh connection so for, with, with Facebook, they, every time you would download the SDK, it would have this giant list of, of trusted certificates that were outdated by like three years, four years. So what we did is I learned, I learned so much, but I, I did a bunch of research and I found out that um, Facebook, whenever you make a connection with Facebook in the SDK, the Graph API uses the Digistert um, certificate authority. So I found the root um, certificate that, that um, Facebook was using, and I found the exact certificate that it was going to verify the peer with, and now this, the SDK only includes that one certificate, and so that means if, if Facebook actually changes um, whoever their certificate authority is, it's going to break everyone's code that uses the PHP <laughs> SDK, um, because it won't be able to connect. But that's actually a lot more secure, right? Right. I mean, you, you don't want people using things that they just, I'd rather it break than it be unsafe. And if it becomes invalidated, it's probably for a reason. And you can even take a step further, um, and what a lot of uh, sites do, and actually what Chrome does for Google and a whole host of other sites, is actually a open source website you can go to to get your site on the list. They do what's known as certificate pinning, which means you pinned just the authority, so it still verifies with the authority. You can take that a step forward and download the actual site certificate for the specific endpoint that you're you're doing you're hitting and say I'm only going to accept this peer. So it's not even doing peer verification; it's just verifying that certificate matches. Um, it, it introduces some usability issues where if their certificate expires, all of a sudden all your requests will fail. But it mm -hmm. adds a heck of a lot of security, and it's actually a very common thing, specifically in like iOS and Android apps. A lot of them do do certificate pinning inside the app for exactly that reason. I actually was. That's one. That's one of my New Year's resolutions. I wanted to add that for the next uh, the next minor PHP release for use in some of the servers because that's really useful if you're running a server in PHP uh, because then they don't have to, like you said, people don't have to go out and get the certificates themselves. It's right there. It comes with the rest of the the handshake payload when you first connect to the site. So that's well, hopefully coming to a PHP near you. So Daniel, you, what your your contribution to PHP Core was um, something about magical peer verification. What what is it exactly that you did? What was it? What was the problem? And then how did you solve the problem with, with when it comes to peer verification? Well, I mean, it's not really magical. Basically, just what was what happened before. Like we 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 know we need this list of certificate authorities that we trust, right? And so uh, PHP had a few options. We could either distribute the that that was kind of the sticking point for a long time how do we do this do we want to maintain our own list of trusted certificate authorities because that's is a whole other can of worms and we'd have to be releasing updates anytime something got invalidated it just wasn't it didn't really seem like it was in the purview of what we wanted to do i mean i don't think it was a good idea so that was kind of the sticking point for a long time so all what five five point six did was um basically it takes the name that you're requesting when you do a stream uh, connection, the domain name, and it verifies using if you have if you're on based on your system, it uses the operating system's uh, certificate store, what came with your operating system. So we don't actually have to maintain our own list of trusted certificate authorities. So now, um, in newer versions of PHP, it just it uses it lets the operating system handle that. 
And so it should, for most things, just work. And if it doesn't work, and then your operating system probably doesn't trust the certificate authority that signed the certificate. And so that protects you against the man in the middle stuff. So that just happens automatically now. And it's configurable where you can still you can still do all the things before. And that's that's what I was talking about earlier when I said it's nice that we use PHP because we're able to to hide a lot of the details of this. Because I mean, as as nice as it is as for us to want to expect people to take responsibility for things like that, you shouldn't have to be an expert in cryptography to be able to conduct a secure uh, stream connection and send data over it. And so that was kind of the goal, to make things like that happen without you having to know about it, to be as secure as possible in the, mo the largest number of cases. Try to fix that 95% problem, you know, for people. So that was, that's, that's what I did. That's my small contribution. There's also um, peer fingerprints. Is that what does that have to do? I, I noticed that when I was, it was one of the options is a peer fingerprint. Is this that was that, kind yeah. of the same? That was the 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 most exciting thing to me. There we had this this question right with with certificate authority. So it's it's a third party and it works really well for things like uh, loading a page on the internet um, because you probably you know you're not terribly concerned if you you pull up. Uh, a you know a sports website and and it's just there are different levels. So mo a lot of the times the privacy is not 100%. It's not a huge priority. But um, as we've learned, the only adversaries are out there aren't just you know like crime people or just you know teenage hackers trying to get your information. You also are dealing with state actors. And so there's this this conflict with the certificate authority system is. How far can you trust, you know, a legitimate business in in a country, or where it, are these people and are these organizations, you know, potentially influenceable? And so, what a peer fingerprint allows you to do is it's very simple. It's just it's just a one-way hash of the information and certificate, and you don't need to. You can verify that and bypass the certificate authority step altogether. So, while it's not really a good thing, it's not really usable. Because you need a way to in in uh, website applications, if you wanted to have the highest expectation of privacy when you're sending information to say uh, another you between your PHP application and maybe a, a socket server that you had on another machine, you could instead of verifying the peer through the name and using the certificate authority, you could just hash the information in the run it through a hash uh, algorithm in certificate, and you know what that hash should be. Um, because you're in communication with that. So if you if you know somebody, you could give them your fingerprint hash for your personal certificate, and then they could always know whether or not that was you. There's no po I mean, well, insofar as the hashing algorithms aren't aren't yeah. subject. I was gonna say there's a massive caveat to that with that you're using a secure algorithm. Uh, Google's right now getting a lot of flack because with Chrome they're talking about deprecating the MD5 and the SHA-1 fingerprinting algorithms, which have been known to be broken for upwards of 10 to 15 years, yet still a very large number of sites are using them, which there's, there's speculation whether or not um, they're actually being used in the wild, forged certificates from state-type act, um, actors who have the resources to forge these things. So there's a double-edged sword there. Um, they can, the fingerprinting is absolutely an excellent method, as long as you're doing it right. Mm -hmm. So and the for the the five point six uh, fear, fear uh, 
peer fingerprinting. Actually, it, it only can do MD5 and SHA-1 automatically for you, and that's just that's similar to the other encryption options. Uh, it just lets you, if you know the fingerprint you're going to put in, uh, you can just input it as a context option. It'll just handle it automatically for you. But right now, the only things it will do automatically for you are those ins the insecure um, options. And so it it's it's so and you can do it manually, but that's that's I'm I'm with kind of Google on that front. I think that you know the sooner and there there I've been reading. I've, I'll try to find a link here before I'm done. Like there, it's estimated the cost now to a state if they wanted to forge a fingerprint like that with SHA-1 would only be in the neighborhood of like one to two million dollars right now. So these are feasible in terms of com computing resources. These are things that are actually feasible right now, and the estimates were in you know only maybe the tens of thousands of dollars is what it would cost by 2021 and so that's something that is even within the reach of you know, like low-level crime syndicates so it's i mean whether or not people agree with it we need to beef up the algorithms we're using for those things well kind of on a related topic uh or semi-related because i'm tr uh we should probably wrap it up here pretty soon but um something that i started learning a lot more about this past year was cryptographically secure pseudo random numbers and strings uh and um as a developer who just grew up needing a random hash, I would just use RAND, MT RAND, because MT RAND is so much better than RAND, I've heard, uh, or unique ID, these little functions that exist in PHP to just generate some sort of random random thing. You're, you're holding up four fingers. What's the four fingers represent? <laughs> because it's guaranteed to be random, because oh. it's a dice roll. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So uh, to, a, to a developer, though, um, it seems kind of random. That seems like a nice thing. But it's uh, these functions don't generate something called cryptographically secure random numbers and strings so so i chris we haven't heard from you in a while what how, why what wh okay first of all why do i even need cryptographically secure what is that there there we go that's a little bit better um so whenever those those functions um generate those random numbers the way that they're generated um is not always as random as it should be i suppose um, you know, the, the algorithms behind there, it's just not, it's not robust enough and you'll get um, duplicates a lot more often, you know, you'll get collisions and everything. Um, you know, if you start gravitating more towards like the, uh, there's an open SSL uh, random pseudobytes, I think that's the name of the function, um, that actually generates it using the open SSL stuff, that'll, that'll produce a more robust kind of randomized number. Um, versus the the hard coded kind of algorithms that are in, built into PHP like that. Yes, there's uh, so I the research that I found on do it with the PHP SDK for Facebook was that uh, encrypt create IV um, generates cryptographically secure. And you guys can correct me on any of these, but um, yeah, also the I think the one you mentioned is mm -hmm. OpenSSL random pseudobytes is the other function. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's um, it. And then the other one is um, trying to access urandom. Um, so that would be, uh, if you have a Linux system, it'd be dev slash urandom. Um, and you just read a certain amount of bytes from that, and that's supposed to be cryptographically secure as well. Um, does that all sound kosher so far? <laughs> all three of those do access the same underlying operating system source. Ah, okay. So it's all basically urandom stuff. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, they, they all acknowledge that PHP is, number one, the wrong place to do this, and B, doesn't have enough information to do this properly, and proxy it off to the operating system, which is a heck of a lot better and is actually audited. 
in fact, didn't PHP have an issue with generating session IDs that were easily um, mm -hmm. discovered? Yep. What, what yep. was that? What happened? Being predictive. Uh, I'm trying to remember the exact details of that. I remember it came through. Was it using time as the seed? Uh, yeah, I think it was in there somewhere. I don't remember. It was like some, I think it was some hard-coded and then some time and then something else that could be automatically. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, every second that it incremented, you couldn't just, you know, use that. It was something else on top of that, but it still could be predicted pretty easily. You could, you could find those hash collisions pretty, pretty easily. So, so once you, yeah, go ahead. Okay. As I say, uh, Patrick Brady has a phenomenal article and I'll find a link for it after we talk here um, about actually doing that, about how to find these collisions through this seemingly random number generator like MT Rand or Rand or Unique ID. They look really random, and you can do a whole bunch of stuff to try to make them even more random. But he showed how using GPUs and things like that, you can actually crack and figure out what the source state is um, and then determine what the next numbers in the sequence are going to be. So realistically, there's, I'm going to go out on a limb and say two types of random number generators, pseudo-random number generators. There are seed-based, which are things like unique ID, um, MT, I'm sorry, RAND and MT RAND, which you feed some kind of an input, and then it, it houses the state together, and then every time you call for a new thing, it uses that state to generate the next item in the list. Then the other type, it uses a seed, but then it also augments it with additional information as time goes on. Unique ID does that, where it seeds it initially and then uses, um, it's actually the time that you call the function. Uh, I think it's maybe the number of uh, microseconds or something like that. But so every call to it adds a little bit of random entropy to it. So while RAND, if you know the internal state, you know it for all time. With Unique ID, you don't. But the problem is with Unique ID, time is not a very good random function. Um, the operating system underneath the hood uses the same kind of a uh, system, but it takes things like network packet timing, so it watches the network interface and uses the time between packets or um, slight fluctuations and voltages in the CPU, like things that are going to be incredibly, incredibly hard to predict, put them all together, and then use that as additional source to keep the next number in the sequence from being predictable. So every time you call them, you're getting more random entropy inside of that call, whereas with RAND um, or MT RAND, once you've got it seeded, you're always going to get the next value in the sequence out. And Chris just pasted that link. That's awesome. We're uh, actually Nick es uh, Escobedo, Escobedo, I don't know, he's, he's my buddy here in Chicago. I should be able to know his, say his name right. But he's on Twitter, and he said that the best random generator he's found is grc.com slash passwords.htm. Um, and it looks like a password generator, and I'm assuming those are cryptographically secure, randomly generated ones. But um, I can't be sure. I haven't, I haven't actually that's, played with. That's exactly right. That's unless it's software that you can audit and run on your own system, never, ever, ever trust it. Um, like, there's what is it? Random.org, I think it is, has you know hardware random generators that you can call via web service API and get random input, random data. The problem is, is that requires you to trust everybody in the stack between right. you and that guy. Gets back to H uh, the TLS peer certificate verification. Gets back to you know all of the stuff that you have to trust everybody in that in that pipeline. Which is why most sites that need a lot of secure data 
invest in their own hardware random number generators that they put on site. That's and they're cool. talking at the operating system level. So if you're using DevView Random, you're getting the benefit from it anyway. That's really cool. When, as a developer, when should I be concerned about actually generating a cryptographically secure pseudorandom number or, or string versus oh. just a random string? Ne never, generate every time? Just a random, never, never use Rand or MTRAND for any reason whatsoever. Um, we're having this discussion because uh, Andrea Folds was talking about um, deprecating and removing parts of it and merging things together and getting rid of RAND and replacing with MTRAND. Uh, an interesting proposal for Seven, and there's been a lot of talk back and forth because people like game developers use it to generate sequences. So they say, okay, I have you know a seed, so I'm pick the username, and I can generate a predictable set of random values. So now we can replay the game multiple times because we can just replay those random numbers, but the numbers themselves are random. Um, so that's one of the common arguments is that people need that to generate these random looking but predictable sequences. To which mm -hmm. me and several other people go, well, if you're gonna do that, use a sequence generator. There are better sequence generators out there that are more reliable, that don't rely on global state. So personally, I would rather see RAND and MT RAND removed from the language entirely and a only a cryptographically secure uh, source added, and that's it. So you, you're saying uh, you can't just under the hood change RAND and MT RAND to make it cryptographically secure because there's that would be a bra uh, breaking change for people who rely on the fact that it's predictable. Right, exactly. And then what about unique ID? Can we go behind the scenes uh, in the back end and just make that cryptographically secure in PHP 7? Yeah, we could. I mean, I don't see any reason why not. I mean, that sounds like a good proposal. Do I need to write that RFC? Go for it. No, I think that's a good idea. It'd be a lot. It'd be a lot by a lot of people. A lot of good for the minimal amount of pain. Oh, cool. Well, I mean, maybe I'll just get on there and do that right after this. I've never submitted an RFC before, but um, I, I would love to. Now that I've got, I, I, I'm going to call it your blessing. I'm going to say I got your all's blessing and <laughs> go for it. And, and try and see what happens. Hopefully it, it'll be a good experience. A lot of people are having good experiences with RFCs lately. So, um, Off the top of my head, that one I don't think should be an issue. Okay, cool. Well, um, where, you know, I, I want to go ahead and start wrapping this up, but if you're listening live, I do have uh, some topics for a post-show discussion, and I'm going to be tweeting the, uh, the link to this Google Hangout on Twitter uh, so you guys can join the conversation um, and add your two cents. But uh, the post-show discussion I have here is talking about um, SH uh, or SHA, SHA-256, um, and discussing something a little bit more in detail about um, SHA-1 and SHA-2. Um, and how the Google Chrome is deprecating uh, SHA-1, um, and I, just some of this, I don't even know what to talk about. Like, I just throwing the subject out there, Rhode Island is not even a road or an island, so discuss amongst yourselves kind of thing. So uh, <laughs> basically SSL stuff, or anything that you um, that you deal with in security-wise, uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on um, stuff that you have to protect against or stuff that you've been hacked on. Um, it's always fun to hear stories about when you get hacked. Um, and then uh, use it as inspiration to not get hacked ourselves. Um, but I'm going to move on to the developer shout out, which is a segment that recognizes a developer that has contributed a lot to the PHP community um, or to the open source world and gives them a big shout out and thank you for their contributions. Uh, the developer is nominated by the panel before the show. And for this episode, I asked the panel to nominate someone who has helped a lot of people better understand security and ways of making their apps more secure. And the developer shout out for episode nine of the PHP Roundtable goes, 
goes to Patrick Brady or Brady. I'm not really sure how to say his name. And uh, he is, he has done a lot with security. And I think Chris, you were the one who mentioned him um, at the beginning. What, what, why is he most deserving of this $25 Amazon gift card? Well, I mean, he's, he's always been one of the people, you know, in, in, even before I really started focusing heavily on security, I can remember reading his stuff, you know, it was, some of it was just way beyond me. You know, I, I didn't understand some of the, some of the articles, but, um, no, I can remember his stuff always being there. Um, he actually started on a, it was kind of a PHP the right way, but for security topics, um, you know, it's uh, surviving the deep end. It's it's out there if you Google for it. Um, but he's yeah, he's made lots of contributions that way. He's he's always very encouraging of security efforts in the PHP community. So yeah, I I definitely think he's deserving. Excellent. Yeah, and that's um, he's the guy with the dragon, uh, the scary dragon is his Twitter avatar. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, Patrick, I'll be um, trying to hit you up on Twitter to get this gift card to you and mail it out. Um, Finally, let's let's do some shameless plugs. Do you guys? Um, let's go start with Daniel. Do you have anything that you want to shamelessly plug before we close this thing out? Uh, oh man, um, not really. You can cruise my GitHub if you want to see if there's anything that's interesting. But I don't I don't have any any specific major things that I'm working on open source right now. But there's lots of stuff. There's goodies on and there. And how would one out. access your GitHub account? Uh, it's R.D. Lowry. You can find it. it's the same on Twitter, it's the same on Stack Overflow, GitHub. It's all it's all there. Same name cool. and everywhere. Easy awesome. to find me. Uh, Anthony, you got anything? Uh, just Twitter. I R C M A X E L L. You got some valuable tweets and amazing blogs. And Chris, you got uh, you got some stuff to promote? Yeah, the two things down there. Uh, the securing PHP. Uh, there's, it's actually two ebooks now um, that I've got out there. And then the websec.io site with all the tutorials and, um, you know, some of it's tutorials specific to PHP and some of it's just general security kind of stuff. Websec.io, I hadn't heard of it until you sent it to me um, before the show and it looks awesome. And there's, you've got this newsletter. I signed up for it because there's all kinds of awesome security tidbits and stuff I actually added to the show notes that we didn't get into. Like I really wanted to talk about um, JSON web tokens, which it, it, it look, they look really cool. Um, but I don't know, for another episode of security probably. Um, so yeah, definitely check that out. Um, so if you're listening live, uh, We'd love to bring you in the conversation here in a second. Um, and for the next episode, we're going to be talking about React.js. Now, this thing is really cool. I, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to get too fanboy-ish on it, but it's it's not a replacement for jQuery. It's not a replacement for Angular or you know Ember, whatever JavaScript framework you use. It is a revolutionary way of thinking about front-end stuff. Just you gotta listen to this episode seriously. Um, it's it'll blow your mind. You're gonna hate it when you when you first when you first hear about it. They're gonna say this is how React happens. You're gonna be like that's not how it's supposed to happen. I hate this. And then you're gonna go away. But no, just just hear them out. Hear what they have to say. It's it's it'll you'll it'll you'll be a fanboy as much as I am. I, I promise. So I just want to thank Daniel, Anthony, and Chris for joining us for this discussion, and we'll see you guys in the next episode. Roundtable is recorded live using Google Hangouts on Air. If you'd like to get more information about the live broadcasts, visit phproundtable.com. While you're on the site, join the mailing list to get notified about the next live episode. And hey, maybe even join the conversation at the roundtable. We'd love to hear what you have to say. 
The theme music is provided by Bensound at bensound.com. The PHP Roundtable logo was designed by Clint McManaman, and you can find him at mcmanaman.co. That's M-C-M-A-N-A-M-A-N dot C-O. Thanks for listening. I'm Sammy K. Powers, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.